Hello, and welcome to the Homeschool Sanity Show, your prescription for happier, healthier homeschooling. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Wilson, Christian psychologist turned homeschooling mother of six. Let's get started. Hey, homeschoolers. What if you could study history where it happened? My guests for today's podcast tell us how to make that possible, whether we are able to travel or not. Before I introduce my guests, though, I want to thank my sponsor for this episode, The Courageous Legacy Movie. Where are you, men of courage? From Sherwood Pictures and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. I want to know what God expects of me. I don't feel like I started well. I want to finish well. Celebrating 10 years of impact on fathers and families. Now remastered in 4K, including a new ending and bonus scenes. I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will. I will. Courageous Legacy. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theater September 24th. My guests today are Dr. W. Kessler Jackson, I'll be calling him Billy, and Nate Norlander. Billy's YouTube channel, The Nomadic Professor, which focuses on history via the presentation of on-location mini-lectures, has tens of thousands of subscribers. Billy holds a Bachelor's in Asian Studies, a Master's in Humanities, and a Master's and Ph.D. in History. He has since been employed at several colleges and universities, developing curricula and building online programs. Nate Norlander was a double major in philosophy and history teaching. He has taught history and English in Beijing and also spent time touring in India and trekking in Nepal. After the pandemic started, he began working on the Nomadic Professor courses. There are some audio issues at the beginning of the interview, but the information and inspiration about how to study history and how to travel as homeschoolers are well worth the listen. Well, Billy and Nate, I am excited to talk with the two of you today about studying history on location. I am a big history fan. I didn't like it when I was in school because of the way that it was taught. But once I started homeschooling my kids and choosing fantastic curriculum, I did become a fan. I love history now. But before we dive into that particular topic of the day, I would love to have the two of you tell us more about yourselves, your families, and your background in education. Uh, Nate, I'm actually going to start with you, if you could answer that. Yeah. Um, so I've, I'm a high school teacher. I, I've been teaching since 2012 um, in a mix of history, English, and a, a different types of philosophy courses. So I'm, I'm coming at these courses that are explicitly history with that kind of uh, background in multiple subjects that we think is important to integrate into the curriculum. Um, I've taught in US charter schools um, and international schools in China. Um, I've taught my own curriculum. I've taught um, IB curriculum uh, and IGCSE and A-levels. So I have a, I hope a good range of experience that informs you know, how I see the high school classroom. More personally, I am a father of two, family of four. Um, 
I don't homeschool my kids. We did a version of it over COVID uh, when we had to move online and we were more involved in a, in a daily way than, than usual in our kids' education. So we, we were more involved in their virtual classes. Uh, so my uh, kids now are, are in school, um, in a local charter school that, that has a, a uh, emphasis on great works of literature, kind of a classical approach, which I, I really appreciate. And I think resonates with me for, for some of the reasons we're building our own courses and uh, trying to emphasize literature, reading, reading skills uh, in a more fundamental and traditional way. Very good. Well, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Nate and I met at the Great Homeschool Convention in Texas this summer and then spent some time chatting at the subsequent convention. So I am happy for you to get to know him as I have. And Billy, I have not met you uh, before today. So I would love to have you take a turn and introduce yourself, your family, and your background in education to us. Sure. Um, so I grew up overseas. My dad was a doctor for the embassies. And so we would move to a different country, usually a different continent, every two or, th two or three years. I graduated from Singapore. Um, so I sort of developed a, a love of history early, although like you, I didn't necessarily enjoy my history classes, mm -hmm. but I read a lot of history. Um, I have a bachelor's in Asian studies, a master's from Penn State in uh, humanities, and then a master's and PhD in history from Syracuse, where I specialized in South Asian Islam and British Empire more generally, uh, as well as minored in American history. I, and then I've been teaching it, I've taught it 15 different colleges and universities as an adjunct. I still teach at five. Um, they like my on-location approach, so they they keep paying me to produce stuff for them, so that's what I do. Um, yeah, I'm married. I have four kids. We've been homeschooling for eight years. Actually, I'm, I'm wrong about that. We've been homeschooling for 10 years. 10 years. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, we love it. My son graduated two years early because he was allowed to move the his own pace and he's he's taking some of my college classes right now so it's been a lot of fun and uh we've been we've been nomadic or semi-nomadic for the last almost five years wow well i would love to hear more about what that actually means in a little bit but i am interested in what got you most intrigued by history why did you decide to um, major in it, you, Billy, when I let you have a turn, but uh, what, Nate, got you interested in history in particular? Um, it's a good question. I didn't start out on a history trajectory. I started, my, my degree is in philosophy, which was my first interest. Um, but in 2010 or 11, I kind of made the decision not to uh, get a PhD in philosophy for lots of different reasons. And so I had already developed an interest in uh, teaching, which was what I was going to do with philosophy. And it kind of overlapped very naturally with what I had been doing in history. Um, I really appreciate 
the historical method. I appreciate the carefulness with which historians have to read and make judgments about the past and discern between hugely different accounts um, and, and you know, bring together evidence that could tell many different stories. There are, there are a lot of ways in which history, philosophy, uh, and English literature, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, overlap. And so I think that history was kind of a, a natural second, um, or, or a natural complement to my, the reasons I loved philosophy. I like the thinking component. I like the arguing component. Um, and I like to feel like I know how to explain the present moment based on historical trends. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And then Billy, what about you? Well, it's been a winding road. Uh, like I said, I grew up all over. So I did develop early on an abiding interest in the world and cultures and languages. I was sort of on location for several major events. Uh, I was in Delhi when the, I don't know if, this is a huge event for about a billion people in the world, but not so well known in the West. During the Babri Masjid riots in India, Rajiv Gandhi assassination. I lived in South Africa when Nelson Mandela won the first multiracial elections there and apartheid officially was completely dismantled. So I was sort of present for some major things and uh, and I took a trip up in the Himalayas to a preserve. And Ladakhi culture is different than Tibetan culture, but it's very similar. The language is very similar. The culture and religion, almost identical. Uh, religion is identical. And uh, I became aware of what was happening next door in Tibet. And it, I borrowed all these books from the library and started reading about it and realized how complicated it was. And for years, I was very active learning and also doing other things in, in in terms of the Tibetan situation. And it sort of got me on the path. But to be honest, getting my bachelor's degree, I just, I switched majors a lot. I wasn't sure what I was gonna do. I, I thought I was going to maybe go into journalism, but I didn't, I didn't really know. I loved languages, I learned Tibetan. Then I went and I got recruited to my shame. This was years ago, I got recruited to work for the federal government, which I'll never do again. <laughs> I got to work for the federal government for a few years in the intelligence community. And um, yeah, well, they make you swear an oath on day one to defend the Constitution. And then every day after that, you break your oath. <laughs> but in any case, I, I was working in the intelligence community. It's the truth. I'm sorry. Everything I did was completely absent from the Constitution. So I don't understand quite how the oath goes with my job. But um, anyway... What I learned there, uh, it was reinforced to me even more how complicated this world is. I was often asked to, to find specific, I, I was given specific intelligence requests. And when I would try to fulfill them, my reports were always filled with footnotes because you have to have that critical context without the footnotes, without the background, it means something different. And so I would turn in these, these reports and they would hand them back to me. I once had a, a sitting president hand me a, a report back and tell me to get rid of all the footnotes because as long as the footnotes are in there, 
this intelligence was unusable. It meant something different. It wasn't as useful to him. Mm. Anyway, it was very disillusioning. And um, I felt like I was sort of being used. But I gained an abiding interest in South Asia again, where I lived for three years as a kid and decided to go back to school and and dive into some of the things that I'd learned there. So I learned Hindi, I learned Urdu, and I went back to school and I and I got my graduate degrees. And yeah, I haven't looked back since, I guess. Wow, well, that is that is really fascinating. I would love to just talk with you more all about what you're, <laughs> what you're saying there, working as part of intelligence, but that's not the topic of our podcast. So we are going to forge ahead and talk more about travel and being on location as part of studying and understanding history. So I'm not, I'm not confused at all about why you were interested in continuing to travel as an adult. Um, it sounds like that was just born and bred into you. But um, what about your family? Uh, did you have to talk your wife into uh, joining you on those travels? I mean, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't have to talk her into it to a degree. Uh, but the, the cool thing is uh, I found out, I didn't know this when we started dating, but I found out that her family, though they didn't travel like mine, uh, they did go back and forth between the U.S. and Japan. Her dad has been working in Japan on and off for 20 years. He speaks perfect Japanese. And uh, so she wasn't totally foreign to the idea of being somewhere else, com completely different. And I told her when we, you know, we're talking about getting engaged, I said, look, if you get engaged to me, <laughs> I just want you to know there's a good chance that we'll be moving around a lot. And we won't live in places that maybe we're used to very much. And are you okay with that? And she was super on board. So yeah. Okay. And, and, and she's been great. She's been amazing. Um, I don't think people realize how actually easy it is to move around or live somewhere else uh, with, even with kids. Everyone seems to think that that's something that happens before and after kids. I don't know why. It's actually very easy to travel with kids, even very young kids, sometimes more so. So yeah, she's been a trooper and yeah, she's totally, it's, it's her life now and she's embraced it. She's awesome. Okay. So I have so many questions and I'm going to try to keep myself under control. I would love to ask you a ton of questions about this, but uh, can you explain more? What type of travel are you doing? Where are you staying? You know, I, I know people who live in an RV. Are you doing that? Or are you, you know, staying in uh, Airbnbs? What are you doing? Yeah, um, it depends where, where we, um, we are not rich by any means. So this is all just funded by my work and, and do everything pretty much on a shoestring budget. We started out with a truck and a tent and not a big tent, a small tent. And we were, we were camping in, in the summer in the South. So that, I don't know if that was very smart, but um, yeah, it started out with a tent. Uh, the next time we traveled was overseas and we were gone for two whole years and we we were moving around probably we were probably in one place between three days and 
a few weeks at a time, then we'd go to the next. Um, and we, we hit about 30 countries starting in Eastern Asia, South and then Southeast Asia and going all the way over land, almost the entire way to Belgium. So we crossed India and then we, we crossed from China into East Turkestan, into Central Asia, across Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, the Black Sea, and then into the Caucasus and then, or the Caspian Sea into the Caucasus and then across the Black Sea to Eastern Europe and, and kept going. Um, the only time we weren't on land was when we crossed the Caspian, our, there was a problem with the ship. And so we had to fly into Tbilisi, but otherwise we were always on land. The Black Sea, we were on a, a ship with a bunch of truckers that my kids called pirates who were really nice. And uh, otherwise we were, we were on land the whole time. And there we would stay in Airbnbs because overseas Airbnb tends to be super cheap. Mm-hmm. And we, we would travel, use just local transport, buses, uh, trains if they were cheap. Usually buses are, are the cheapest. Um, taxis, if we were in certain countries are very, very cheap. It was really a shoestring travel. But everywhere we'd go, I would, I, I had a camera and I had a stabilizer and I had my field mic and we would record lectures. I would just be walking, whether it's walking on the ruins or walking on a battlefield or walking, you know, in front of a historic monument or, or a structure or whatever it was. Um, that's what we would do. And that was the whole point of it. And the whole family came along and they did great. And then uh, in 2019, we did another North America tour again in a tent. This time the tent had three rooms to it. So that felt like great. We even brought a a rug, like a Persian rug. Um, (laughs) Okay. So Billy, you just finished telling us that you even had a Persian rug with you when you were (laughs) camping, right? When, when we were having some audio difficulties And so that actually leads me to know one of the answers to a question that I had for you, which is what are the pros and cons of homeschooling while traveling? And I see that potentially internet connection can be one of the issues, right? Oh, definitely. Especially if you're moving around. I mean, if you're going to be stationary, you can eventually set up, you know, create a situation where there's no problem. But Man, if you're changing sites every few days or weeks, it's, it is a constant challenge. There's no question about it. Yes. Well, what are some of the pros for it, um, of it, I should say, of homeschooling while traveling? Well, there are lots, lots of pros, a few cons. Um, the pros, uh, number one would be you end up exposing your children to the world. They meet a lot of different people. We go to church everywhere we go, and that puts us immediately into a social circle of locals. And my kids are very social, and so they always make friends. They'll often go to church activities during the week just while we're there, even if we're there for one week. And so they're meeting people. Uh, They're sometimes keeping in touch with them. Um, As we travel overseas, same thing. I love it that my kids can reference a Kyrgyz friend just like it's nothing like that isn't strange for someone from Idaho but you know they met someone while we were in Osh in the Fergana Valley and they continue to write to each other anyway uh it's kind of fun for them to have that global perspective um also as someone who enjoys putting together 
courses and curricula. It's sort of my job. It's kind of fun putting together assignments for them to take full advantage of the fact that we're in a specific place. Uh, for this trip, I've created what I call excursion forms. They're two-page forms, but essentially they are designed to have the kids get the most educationally out of the place where we are. So that the, the form will, will say something like, you know, uh, take two photos, at least one of you and place them here. And then they'll have a journal entry space. And then they'll have to name a certain number of interesting facts they learned at the site. They'll have to fill out a map. They'll have to plot their location. They'll have to select an assignment from a list. And I have 10 different assignments ranging from poems and stories to essays and screenplays and uh, slide presentations and promotional brochures and other things. Uh, that have to do with the place where we are. Um, I'll tell them to find a quiet place to read and assign them a certain number of minutes where they'll have to read and then reflect on paper. And what it all, it, it sounds like a lot, but what it all ends up <laughs> doing is, it, 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 what they do is they create a record of their travels. They don't think of it that way while they're doing it, but afterwards, what they've got is a whole binder filled with a journal and pictures and maps and all sorts of things that help them remember the journey and sort of reinforcing. And uh, I hope, I mean, time will tell, maybe I've screwed everything up here, but, <laughs> but I hope what this means is that, uh, I hope this has uh, been good for them educationally. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it has. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, it certainly sounds like it. So we started off talking about uh, travel and history for you. Why do you think homeschoolers should study history on location, study it in the context of where it happened? Why is that important? Well, and, and this varies from family to family, but some homeschoolers, um, they homeschool for the flexibility that it provides. And with that flexibility, maybe you're more in a position to make the on to, to give the on location option a try than someone that's anchored to a brick and mortar school somewhere. Um, the other thing is a lot of homeschoolers work on a screen. They work on a computer. They would, they do their stuff online. And um, if you're doing that, you may as well take advantage of what the internet can provide. You know, in, in a brick and mortar classroom, your professor, or your teacher is standing up there in the room. Uh, they're physically present with you and there are, there are benefits to that, but it's kind of cool and extra engaging to have a professor that is teaching you, say, American history and appears to be all over America. Whatever you're learning about, your professor is there mm -hmm. and bringing the setting alive. You know, history is often thought of as, you know, history is dead. Everything, everyone you're learning about almost is, is dead, literally. Um, but the places are all still there. And so that, that's the element that you can bring to life. And I've, I've, I've seen some pretty bad online history courses. And a lot of colleges and universities right now are moving online because they have to, especially after the last year and a half. And, I, and there are some pretty bad ones. There's some, there some good ones. But one way that we try to engage with someone that might be sitting in their bedroom on a computer is to at least have the professor be present at the place where it happened. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's more, that's more engaging than, than the alternative. Mm -hmm. Obviously the best is to go there yourself, but not everyone can do that. And certainly not everyone can 
you know, each one of our courses comes with at least 50 different on location videos. So if you think about the sheer amount of travel and, <laughs> and expense that that demands, uh, it, this really has been a labor of love because mm. uh, otherwise there's no way I would have done it. Right. I know homeschoolers and I know that even though you said, yeah, so I've been to 50 different places to produce this curriculum. I still know that some of these families who are listening are thinking, yeah, but I would like to give it a try. Do it. <laughs> so, yeah. Do so, it. so, so help us, give us some tips. If there is a family who would seriously consider beginning to travel and study history that way, what are some tips that you have for them to get started? Well, someone with that thought process may already be pretty good at traveling. Uh, I would start with a, a U.S. trip and I would challenge yourself to make a trip that's a little longer than anything you've done before. Don't, don't uh, stay within your sort of comfort zone. Get out of your comfort zone. So if, if you've never left on more than a two-week trip, leave for a month or leave for two months. And that's going to take some serious planning. Uh, most people, uh, just our modern society, we, we root ourselves down with a variety of responsibilities and, and connections. And it's very hard for us to uproot for more than a few days or, or a few weeks at most. And so see, see what it actually takes. What, what does it really demand of you to uproot yourself for two months or five months or, or whatever it might be, a whole year? Um, that may not be as, as easy as you think, or you may find, oh my gosh, that was pretty easy. That uh, sort of depends on you. Um, so, but I would start with an American trip and I would, I would travel a little longer than you're used to or feel comfortable and see how you do. Um, traveling overseas, this is so, I mean, the variables are, there are so many variables and it's so different from person to person. Um, I like to take people who haven't been overseas. I, I've, I've led a few tours. I like to take people right to India because if you can travel in India, you can travel pretty much anywhere. Um, it's a fantastic place, but it's not, it's sort of a, a, a sudden, quick, no holds barred introduction to everything that international travel can be. And so it's a great place to test yourself. Uh, you do not need a lot of money. The, the, the great expense for international travel with a family, and because that, that's the thing, that's the big expense is that you're buying you know, for me, I have four kids. So if I want to travel overseas, I have to buy six overseas return tickets or one-way tickets and then buy them again at the end. That's a lot of money. But if I can get out across the pond, at that point, the, the high expenses need not be there. Now, if you go to a place like Japan, you may end up spending a lot. But almost anywhere in Asia, almost anywhere in Africa, and half the countries in Europe have very cheap Airbnbs. We're talking 20, 30 bucks a night um, and, and fit our family. Uh, they have very cheap city to city bus options, you know, 10, 12 bucks. And you can go from one major city in one European country to another major city. And they also have uh, cheap intra-Europe or intra-Asia, Africa, not so much, airlines that, I mean, blow the socks off our, our I mean, totally destroy our American prices for our domestic airlines, which are still so expensive. You know, you can travel from London to Budapest sometimes for 15 bucks. 
on, on something like a Ryanair. I would get used to traveling light. That's why I would do the test trip first. Travel a little longer than you're used to and travel, practice traveling very light with just a car- the equivalent of a carry-on if possible and see how you do. So if you're going to go international, that is the best way to do it. Anyway, I've thrown out way too much there, but no, maybe start I, with that. I love it. It's, it's just so fascinating. So thank you for explaining that. Yeah, no problem. So Nate, not everyone is able to travel to study history like Billy is. So what solution have you create, created for homeschoolers like me who, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that? Um, yeah, so often our booth at conventions gets mistaken for a kind of on-location, you know, semester abroad type experience. And uh, I wish we could offer that right now. What we can offer uh, is high quality material where the setting is brought to life by a professor. Uh, we, we, we hope that that is an engaging element of a good online curriculum because you know not everybody can travel but we are all connected on the internet Uh, and so there's an opportunity there to to not be bound by a by classroom walls or bedroom walls or whatever and you know it don't you can only take it so far but the having a personality on a screen is valuable in and of itself because there's a relationship being built. There's an authority behind the words being spoken and it's less sort of anonymous and uh, passive than, than a textbook. And so that's an element of it. But when you add in the fact that he's on location and the setting is passing by in the background, there is a, a visual and uh oral experience that I don't think you get just reading or uh, just watching a studio recorded uh, lecture. So, so we hope that uh, as much as we want everybody to experience every setting, I don't travel as much as Dr. Jackson. Um, and uh, I feel like this, this is a, a way of bringing to life historical settings uh, that puts some flesh and bone on events um, that are otherwise a little more stale and distant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that it, I think it's a fantastic solution. And I think it makes it engaging for a variety of learning styles. Not everyone learns the best from reading. Uh, that happens to be my primary learning style, but I think, you know, that we get we get the audio, we get the visual um, along with it. So it sounds fantastic. How have you made this curriculum user friendly for homeschoolers? You know, you have a high school student at home, and you want them to be able to um, use it and and make it easy on mom if mom is the teacher primarily. So how does it work? Good question. You just opened yourself up for a 45 minute spiel. (laughs) (laughs) You're ready. I will try to be concise. Um, I mean, you talked about different learning styles. I've talked explicitly at all the conventions in in different workshops about our our deliberate attempts to address 
some of those needs. Some of them are the result of an online learning environment. Some of them are the result of students who are isolated, either because they're uh, in homeschool and they don't have, um, you know, easy connection to like a peer-to-peer -peer work you would do in a classroom or, or for whatever reason, um, there are unique needs for homeschool and virtual learning that we've tried to address in our curriculum. Um, and so the way that it works and the, the, the sort of way we hope it doesn't put uh, huge demands on parents who have students in high school who are uh, reaching an age of maturity where, where they can self-regulate, um, they can self-grade, they can self-pace in a way that an elementary or younger middle school student couldn't. Our courses um, are built so that a student can log in and have clear checklist instructions for a day's work. Um, and so that's one element of user-friendliness. There's no mystery, there's no thousand page textbook in which a student has to get guess how far to get in a certain day or what to pay attention to in a certain chapter. All of that mystery is taken out because we have daily expectations. It's broken down literally by 30, 60, 90 minute block. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. It sounds fantastic. And something that I would appreciate as a homeschooling mom of high school students. So whenever we're talking about high school curriculum in particular, it's important to know the worldview of the curriculum. I know that my listeners are interested in what that is of your curriculum. So can you address that? Yeah, this is a question we get um, often at homeschool conventions. Um, and sometimes the question is coming from a, a concern about political ideology or agenda. Sometimes the question is uh, based on a, a question about religious orientation. Um, and I, I think there are a couple of ways to answer this. The first way I'll answer it is sometimes I wonder if the question is based on an assumption about the goals of a history curriculum that we don't uh, necessarily share. Um, while there are curriculums that are, are driven by a motivation to correct a particular public narrative or historical narrative, um, we try to avoid a kind of agenda-driven or partisan approach to the subject. And when you're working with history, one of the things we want to teach students is that you have to be humble, especially when you're looking back and you're forced to make judgments as you make connections and try and, and weigh the context of this document and read between the lines, you're going to end up making judgments. And often those judgments are colored by our supposedly enlightened modern day perches. And we want to educate students, not just to be able to contextualize uh, documents and to have the red flags go up when they should, but also to be able to look back at, say, a historical figure and um, do so with a little bit of humility, realizing that, you know, most people in the world, the vast majority are conventional. They think conventionally. Their ideas are, they tend to be popular ideas of the time. 
And so when they look back at someone like, for example, a Thomas Jefferson, who for his time was a radical thinker, he was very, what we might call forward thinking. He was not conventional. And yet today we have lots of conventional thinking people thinking that their ideas are so much better and that his were so depraved because he held a few ideas that are now unpopular that they need to tear down his statues and whatever. I'm not talking about tearing down statues here, really. I'm just saying that that sort of thinking is what we want to get away from. Um, most historians are supposed to, well, we, we really start with one job and our job is to tell you is to try and figure out what happened. And that's it. What actually happened? The second thing that historians do, once they've, they think they've figured out what happened, the next, their next task is to make connections. And, and that's where the analysis comes in. But we strive, and while acknowledging that every, every historian, every scholar, every student is going to approach a text with their own biases and their own baggage, uh, while we acknowledge that, we strive for uh, keep. We strive to keep our our eye on the goal, which is simply to say what happened. And this is important stuff for the students. This this is transferable stuff. These skills are very transferable in the sense that you know we want a student to be able to interrogate any text. They're going to be confronted. They're going. I mean, we live in a world that is just filled with information. It's going to be thrown at them every day in a wide variety of media. Uh, they're going to read it in the newspaper, online. They're going to hear political speeches. They're going to listen to professorial lectures and, and everything. And they have to be able to interrogate what they hear, contextualize it, read between the lines, and have the red flags go up when necessary. Um, we teach them. In fact, one of, one of the things Nate's done to scaffold our course um, is he has the students interrogate our text. He has the students parse through my videos and challenge them. Um, so we try not to present ourselves as the final authority because if a historian does that, then the historian, uh, I would suggest, doesn't understand the craft. And first and foremost, we're striving to train students um, to to interrogate texts using historical methodology, which is very transferable to other, other spheres of their life. So you, you may not have a, an abiding interest in history, but if you, if you were to take our courses, I think you'd come away seeing the world a little differently and being a little more equipped to resist, uh, let's say, manipulation. It sounds uh, very, um, I guess, rigorous in terms of having students be critical thinkers. So I really like that. Okay, so right now you have an American history course, correct? That's right. We have, um, we have, so I'll answer you maybe in a little more long-winded way than just yes or no. We, <laughs> our American history program has four parts. Right now we're publishing the second part one unit at a time. And our, our, I don't know if this is relevant to your question. Our payment method or our way that people get access to our content is usually by subscription. So a subscriber would have access to course one and everything from courses two, three, and four as they're published. That's, that's kind of our ongoing model. Okay. So do you have plans to expand beyond American history? Yes. In fact, um, 
next year, my family would be moving to Africa for a year. And then after Africa, I mean, it sort of depends on what happens in the world. You make plans beyond a year or two, I find you often, especially as to a travel, you often have to change them. But um, yeah, we'll be overseas for at least a year, if not two or three, um, filming and preparing material for our four world history courses. So the four courses that he's talking about for the four parts, that's all together, that's one big American history survey that goes from pre-Columbian times up to near the present. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll have something similar for world history, four courses that taken together represent an entire uh, world history uh, survey. Uh, we designed them to be done around, to take a, around two years for a high school student. Um, but we've built into the courses uh, material that would equal something like a half credit in other, other subjects as well, American literature, logic and rhetoric, college writing, uh, all, all sorts of things. So when I say two years, realize uh, there's a lot more built into this. This is sort of like an interdisciplinary humanities curriculum where we use history as the main driver. But yes, to answer your original question, yes, world history is on the way. And uh, depending on how that goes, we may also offer a Western Civ as well as uh, Asian history four-part series. All right, wonderful. It sounds so interesting and exciting. And I know that my listeners are wanting to know where they can find your curriculum and how they can connect with you online. Uh, so where you can find the curriculum is at nomadicprofessor.com. Um, you can see our available courses. Uh, you can preview our community. Um, on the community, we have a blog, we have a newsletter. There are various ways to keep in touch or pay attention to what we're doing, whether you have a high school student who's in American history or not. So we hope that um, there, is, there is something for more families than simply those with high school students right now. Uh, the, maybe, um, Billy, you can tell them about your, your social media um, accounts. Sure. Um, and one more thing about our community, we call it Nomad Nation. It's available for a, a less expense. I mean, none of our subscriptions, I think, are very expensive, but the least expensive subscription is just Nomad Nation. All, all this information is on nomadicprofessor.com, but if you go to YouTube and just type in Nomadic Professor, you'll see my YouTube channel. I've been able to build up about, I'm, I'm approaching 30,000 subscribers now um, from all over the world. But yeah, you just type in Nomadic Professor and that will come up. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, quick, The Nomadic Professor, all one word, The Nomadic Professor on Instagram. And, uh, you know, the public content that we release is, is on YouTube, the YouTube channel, The Nomadic Professor. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for joining me for the podcast. Uh, this is so interesting and I really cannot wait to dive into the material that you have both on your YouTube channel and the website. Thank yeah. you for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's been uh, great. And uh, we, we have a support email. If, if listeners are interested in asking deeper questions, they can chat with us at nomadicprofessor.com. 
or email us at support at nomadicprofessor.com. Fantastic. Thanks again. To learn more about my sponsor, The Courageous Legacy Movie, and The Nomadic Professor, go to homeschoolsanity.com slash on location. Have a happy homeschool week. Thank you for joining me. Happy, healthy homeschooling can be yours. It begins with one small step. Let's continue the conversation on social media. I'm at Psycho with Six. This has been a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network.